listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Alpha is a process. Right? You, you're never arrived. Mm-hmm. It is the constant process of trying to be um, the right amount ahead of the curve. You don't. You can't be too far ahead because then, then you're just nonsense. Um, but you you can't just be thinking of things from from the perspective of where everybody else is thinking of them, or you're not going to get different results. You have to be different enough. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, coming to you from sunny Miami, where some of the top investing talent in the world is gathered for the annual Context Conference. I'm your host, Jeff Malik, and I've managed to peel away a couple of talents from their conference duties today. Rodrigo Gordillo, Adam Butler, and Mike Philbrick of Resolve Asset Management. Welcome, guys. Thank Thank you for having us. Resolve's a Toronto-based asset manager doing all sorts of cool things around asset allocation strategies, from managing mutual funds to private hedge funds and are one of the more prolific firms in terms of investor education and writing, with white papers, webinars, and podcasts under the Resolve banner. <coughs> I'll have to admit, we've been known to peek over at your guys' writing from time to time and borrow some ideas for blog posts and whatnot. Feelings mutual. Got it. So we'll start personal, and we'll start with uh, Rodrigo. Sure. Uh, give a little background. You're from Peru, right? Born and raised, yeah. So how do you become a hedge fund manager out of Peru? Seems you like a you experience pack. a massive economic event for the, uh, for the nation at an early age. And those formative years really make uh, a big impact as to what you do when you're older. So in 1989, 88-89, the Shining Path um, terrorist group came down upon the city, amongst other economic issues that were happening at the time, high inflation and whatnot. But when they came down and the president decided to renege on his IMF loans, inflation went to 7,000% in six months. My parents lost it all. My neighbor who had his uh, mortgage and it was about to be evicted was able to pay down his mortgage with a few US dollars. And a lot of people emigrated out of Canada, out of uh, Peru toward Canada and, uh, <coughs> and uh, Australia. We decided on Canada. And um, the rest is history. So all of that kind of, you know, the background is also, you know, we come from a mathematics family, um, got the quant bug fairly uh, early in the um, investment career. And then from there, met Mike and Adam 2011. We're off to the races. Sounds good. Adam, how about yourself? Nothing nearly so interesting um, on a background standpoint. Um, But I didn't really discover that I wanted to be in the investing field until... Um, most of the way through university and I entered into trading competition and uh, ended up doing well and, and caught the bug and worked on a trading desk and um, learned some very valuable lessons um, and um, 
I guess, sort of as, as a third major lesson after the 2008 crisis, um, decided that I didn't want to run strategies anymore that were vulnerable to that type of outcome again. And, and uh, that was the catalyst for a move into systematic global macro. And uh, that's kind of where we've been ever since. It's been a neat ride. What would you... Uh What'd you place in that trading competition? I, I, I placed first in the first one. It was great and, and um, got and it was what was so great was that the I was in the psych program and the commerce students, there were three classes of commerce students where all the students also participated in this. It was a national contest. And and I won it and n- none of the other um, commerce students did very well. So it was a nice sort of psych department versus commerce department rivalry uh, point of discussion for a while. I love Canada, calls it the Commerce Department. That would be like economics at a U.S. university? Yeah, business, economics, yeah. 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 Commerce. And Mike, you might have the most interesting background. Uh, some Canadian Football <laughs> League in there? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually grew up uh, on a farm, you know, learned, learned, the, learned the value of hard work, and, um, and then uh, had the opportunity to play football professionally in Canada for 12 years. Um, whilst I was doing that, I also uh, was fortunate enough to be hired by a firm who allowed me to do both at the same time. Because in Canada, you can't you can't quite make enough money to just retire forever after. And um, and and I you know I, I want to be challenged. I like I like the um, the nature of our business uh, in in the way in which it allows you to be uh, competitive and that competition is uh, something that is enticing and I like to play a game every day where you know what the score is yeah it is very similar to athletics right there's a score there's a winner there's a loser each and every day and in in some case it it, you know sports is the ultimate zero-sum game the Super Bowl is is going to happen on Sunday and there was 256 games played in the NFL this year and there always is and there's a winner and loser to every one and you have a winner at the end and Teams take different approaches to add alpha and value and win. Um, at the end of the day, there can only be one winner. So there's some. My analogous. Bears didn't add a lot of alpha this year. Yeah, I, I do like the Bears though. They're coming around. All right, we'll see. Uh, who do you like in the Super Bowl? Ooh, I would. I would say so. Probabilistically thinking that they're they're it's probably underestimated the opportunity the the Niners have. I, I think that it's probably the Chiefs, but. Yeah, I think you and I were talking about this last night. I think there's a, a lot of strange opportunities within the potential futures that will go on in the next uh, few days that would maybe favor the Niners a little bit more than the odds makers are suggesting. I like uh, So we'll throw it back out to any of you. How had the three of you come together and found resolve? Well, when there's there's you know three zebras walking amongst a you know a herd of horses, you you find each other pretty quickly, and. Um, uh, Adam and I, as, as you, as Adam alluded to, uh, 2008 was, was, you know, sort of, uh, informative to us as to how we might think about the investment problem. And we ran into Rodrigo who was managing his, uh, um, assets all from an alternative perspective and who had prospered very, very well in 2008. So when we met each other, it was, it was kind of obvious that this is something that, um, should come together. And, and it's, um, it really is hard to find great talent to work with people that are talented, but also mindful and, um, you know, 
uh, constructive to all situations. And so it, it's been, it's and been a diverse really skill sets, right? Yeah. Oh, it was absolutely. I had a few partnerships before that and it was always about, okay, we all do the same thing really well. Let's get together and try to do something. And there was always a, an ego trip, right? Who's doing better at the one thing that we are all good at. When I met Mike and Adam, we all had very diverse skill sets. Adam on the uh, writing side and the quant and analytics side. Mike was has been leading men and women his whole career through both bank system and and in sports. And I was you know pretty good business development person in quant, so a little bit of a Venn diagram there, but enough diversity that it made it easy for us to just trust each other on what we were good at and say, all right, everybody do their own thing in their own area and, and let's build this up. And the, the content size that you mentioned, has that been a conscious effort to educate or did that just come out of your research process and wanting to uh, figure out things for your own and then sharing what you found out? That, that publishing effort was a catharsis after the 2008 uh, crash. Honestly, it was sort of an effort to find ourselves. You know, it was sort of Mike and I had, had recently teamed up. We had this very interesting experience, um, trying to navigate around how to emerge from it. Um, not just sort of learning lessons and then moving on, but learning lessons and making changes. And um, so it was just sort of an effort to document that journey and hold us accountable to that thinking. And it was it ended up being this incredible feedback mechanism where you sort of put yourself out there. You don't fully understand the problem in the beginning. Um, even though you don't really know enough to know what you don't know. Um, so at, at each stage along the journey, you think you know a lot more than you do. But, you know, then people sort of surrounding you, they're, they're increasingly reading the material. They're giving you feedback. You're learning about how you might want to shift a little bit, how you think about the problem. And, you know, that was beginning of 09. We're in the beginning of 2020. So that's a 10-year journey. And I think we've all learned an incredible amount. Um, about the quant community and how to think about the problem. And I know our evolution or our thinking has evolved <laughs> very substantially in that time. Do you ever look back at some of the 09 and 10, 11 stuff and be like, Oh my God, we didn't know what we didn't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean really stuff prior to, to 2012 is complete nonsense and, <laughs> and stuff prior to 2014 mostly um, needs a, a complete rewrite, but, you know, is that's, that's part of the journey. Is it, it still it, out there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They're still valid. Like, they're still good. Even <laughs> though it's, it seems like a little bit Mickey Mouse to us now at the time, it was a massive leap in our thinking. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely worthwhile reading if you want to go back down that far. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I think it's a, an, an excellent example that, um, alpha is a process, right? You, you're never arrived. Mm -hmm. It is the constant process of trying to be um, the right amount ahead of the curve. You don't. You can't be too far ahead because then, then you're just nonsense. Um, but you you can't just be thinking of things from from the perspective of where everybody else is thinking of them, or you're not going to get different results. You have to be different enough. And if you go back through the evolution of the thinking, and I would I would argue, yeah, you go back. It's kind of funny. 12, 11, 9, last year. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so our, you know, our process is one of understanding it's a process. Yeah. Well said. Mm -hmm.
tell me a little bit more about the overall firm. So there's you three, how many others? But what, 15 or 16 people in total, um, a, an operations team that's been trading futures for almost 20 years now, 16 years. And um, um, a Adam, growing research team. Yeah, growing and research um, team. We've got, um, well, you, yeah, walk through the research team. That's a great. Yeah, well, I mean, our, um, our product line has evolved. You know, we started out running um, systematic ETF strategies, kind of global asset allocation. And um, then there was demand from new clients who were really enamored with how we thought about the problem. And it sort of nudged us into thinking about whether we wanted to express these types of concepts uh, through futures instead. And uh, so we took our time and, and uh, went about that thoroughly and mindfully. And um, that was several years ago now. And um, so our, our research needs have changed. You know, we, our, the, the products we run right now are orders of magnitude more sophisticated than the ones that we ran five or six years ago. But, and you know, while the thinking has evolved, some of the major themes that inform um, how we think about markets and think about the problem uh, really haven't, really haven't changed that much. But, you know, we've added um, people to the team with backgrounds in high frequency um, trading, uh, backgrounds in applied math. One of the members of the team uh, did some of the founding research on neural nets in the 1980s and then went on to um, found and, and build a, a software company and um, now is back doing work in machine learning. You know, it's, it's, it's a diverse team with um, complementary skill sets, a lot like um, the way that the, the partners, the founding partners kind of came together. And it's been really neat to see all that reinforce. Do you feel like it's a bit of an arms race that you need to spend and hire in order to stay relevant and keep up with your peers and competitors? A little bit, but you've also got to know where you fit, you know? Um, I mean, we're not going to compete with, with Rentec. Um, you know, we're not going to compete at the, at the microsecond scale. Um, that really is an arms race. Um, at least not right now. You know, we may, we may evolve to, to get higher and higher frequency. There's mathematical reasons why higher frequency has higher expectancy, all things equal. But, um, you know, I think you've got to know who you are and who you're competing against in the alpha, who you're competing against in the market and where are their gaps, um, that you might be able to fill with your expertise. And I think we're uniquely positioned to fill some sort of mid-frequency gaps um, that are pretty exciting in the next sort of six to 12 months. And in the meantime, just bringing on new blood who've been very successful thinking about the problem in a very different way has inspired a, us to think about the problem in, in very different ways. And, and just the evolution in our thinking on the research side over the last year it has been pretty incredible to, to see. Yeah, I, I think it's um, a function of strategy, structure, execution, and behavior. So y you you have a strategy. What, what, what structure is it going to be in? Because that will have limitations on how you might be able to execute it. And are you going to be able to behaviorally stick with it? <coughs> so then how do you fit in to the marketplace in order to extract some um, error or some mistakes in, in the marketplace that are being made on a regular basis where you're going to be able to reliably extract um, those uh, opportunities for excess return 
And I think that we think very, very carefully about that in order to manifest the strategy that's going to provide uh, for some excess return that's, um, that's reliable. And then having a number of those edges and then assembling those edges in a way that's thoughtful and different. I think that the way we approach that is quite unique and the things that we are willing to do that others aren't is largely where we're going to gather some excess return from. Which that's a good lead into getting in, diving into the strategies a bit. We kind of buried the lead a little here. Um, but maybe Rodrigo, give me the 30 second elevator pitch on what you guys do and what you're good at from a strategy standpoint. <clears throat> well, as I think we alluded to, we're hundred percent systematic. And, um, one of the things that Mike mentioned is the structure and where we want this business to really grow. And so we consider ourselves to be institutional quality research and product. Um, and in order to do that, you need to accommodate large AUM. You need to be able to bring it in. So you can't go down on the microscopic, like take that data level. You have to do in a day in order to be able to accommodate the, the institutional interest that's coming our way while still being different enough to, uh, to get paid what an alpha manager should get paid. So the way the our, our evolution futures program is designed, it is not it is all futures, but it's a different way of managing futures. Right? It's not the traditional trend. It is a multi-strat um, with different alpha buckets that include some of the basic um, fundamental understanding that you see in the style premium space on quality, value, and so on. Except we're trying to extract other behavioral flaws that are less popular and still provide a robust alpha as we see the traditional style premia really collapse. And so the Evolution Futures Program is designed to fill that gap, to provide uh, a series of non-correlated alpha strategies like seasonality, skewness, mean reversion, um, certain types of carry strategies in, in, in ensembles. So each one of these little alpha buckets has not just one or two ways of trying to extract that particular signal, but thousands of different ways and we've written a ton on the values of ensemble and um and then the other side of the equation beyond just trying to find better alpha buckets that allow us to choose across 80 different futures contracts from better or worse is the weighting scheme which i think is ignored by a lot of the uh, alternative space right so we focus too much on trying to find an edge and too little on then once <coughs> the edge being what are the winners what am i going to go long what am i going to short very little time spent on how you weight those and we spent an, an equal amount of time on that side of the equation, which has the ability to increase sharp ratios as much as 50% of times. So that is, I think, where our niche is. Very different portfolio construction. We're working in an area that is yet to be harvested uh, globally in, in a very aggressive way. And that means that our correlation for this strategy to traditional risk premia, CTAs, and whatnot is nearly zero. And take me one level up, though. So the evolution strategy is one of your products it's yeah it's our lead hedge fund product long short uh futures product okay and then there's how many others we run a 40 act fund as well um that is uh, run by rational funds so we sub-advise for them and that one is a kind of coming in from our some of our legacy programs which were completion portfolios right so you have it's a long flat strategy using similar um, kind of alpha signals in order to decide what the weighting is going to be in the same type of optimization at the back end. But it's designed to be a bit more trans transparent and uh, approachable for the retail space where you have a 60-40 portfolio. This sleeve can represent 10%. 
and give you exposures to things like commodities, real estate, global equities, German bonds. And, and that's sort of your guy's DNA of asset allocation, right? Not correct. just I'm focusing on one trade that makes money, but these different pieces, as you called them, the ensemble, and how do the different assets mix and correct. work together? That's right. Well, even, even thinking about not just the assets, how do the different resulting strategies that you're running on various assets manifest in a return stream that you would then optimize within a portfolio. But if you guys found one thing that worked just really well on oil, even if it's an ensemble approach and many different, you probably wouldn't trade that because you wanted more broad-based asset well, I'm you not exposure. Gonna, I'm not going to say anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's, that's funny, but it's also an interesting point because I think, um, you know, it used to be the point when we were running strategies that were informed primarily by trend or momentum um, that we shared all of our research. There wasn't anything behind the, um, the, the veil, you know, um, and as the strategies have become more sophisticated and we've realized just how quickly um, other investors, including, you know, commercial investors uh, will steal your IP and, you know, use it for themselves, then, and we've, and we've seen, we've, we've developed IP that is, I think, legitimately different and represents genuine alpha. Um, we're a lot less inclined to publish all of that research. You know, we still publish lots of research, but there's now a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we're a little bit less willing to share the details about, you know, um, and, yeah, and you, you do see that with some of the biggest uh, pensions and endowments out there bringing strategies in-house of, okay, I've watched this for five years. Absolutely. You guys have shown me the ropes. I'm going to hire some PM for less money and try it myself, yep. which I personally think is a road, dangerous road for them. Well, we've, we, uh, it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. If you didn't develop the strategy, you didn't build the strategy, we have heard of several scenarios where adaptive asset allocation has been... Um, that paper that uh, was written back in 2011, 2011, yeah. how that was adopted by some major pension fan, uh, uh, plans with uh, catastrophic results, mainly because they just didn't quite fully understand the depth of what was required. Always want to add your own tilt and um, they go sideways. So it, it, it is, again, this whole, this whole uh, idea of alpha is a process. You you need, you know, it's the, it's, what is it? The red queen syndrome from, um, um, the mad hatter, right? You need to be running just to keep up. Yeah. And there's, so what Mike is speaking of is the difficulty operationally on trying to replicate a bunch of white papers that are trying to extract whatever premium. So the adaptive asset allocation, uh, framework is what we run in the 40 act fund, but it can, it has evolved every year as we continue to do the research. But I think there's also the issue of publishing and what the impact of that once it's widely accepted. And I think we can see that in the, um, the factor space, right? The, there's, as we speak to institution after institution, they're all rationalizing. They're firing their external managers that are charging any fees and trying to bring the factors in-house. And we actually just did a pod, we have a podcast of our own called Gestalt University, and we just did an interview with the, uh, what was his position at the time? Uh, global tactical asset allocation, and then eventually he developed- Global style premium or something, yeah. 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 
So he developed a style premium approach uh, from first principles back in 2004 before anybody was doing it. And the sharp ratio was high, above one, like 1 1.2. And then in, he said that in 2010, when all the papers came out and everybody finally accepted it, he saw 100x AUM go into the product and his sharp get cut by 30%. Yeah. And so what's interesting now this year is that I'm seeing and hearing more, inst more and more institutions saying, we're bringing, we're going to do style premium, we're going to do factors, we're going to bring them all in-house. So you can imagine this is, uh, this is already a trend that's bad. It's going to get even worse. And so the, even if they do replicate it poorly, what that does mean is for the people who are getting paid for that, they're probably either going to get fired or there's just not going to be any return to speak of. So the key <coughs> for us is to make sure that we're attacking that space from an acute angle and providing something completely different. And are you seeing those, so they're bringing it in-house or they're going to a bank platform or whatnot that's offering those different risk premiums? I'm seeing it more in house. I think the sophisticated guys that can pull it off, the quant, because they are they're hiring quants internally, yeah, and those quants recognize that that you know simple like fifty basis point swap that they can get from the banks are not, you know, yeah, it's not they're going to try to do a little bit better. But at the end of the day, well, I think a lot of them have been burned on those ultra simplistic bank oriented factor strategies, and I mean, what the banks do, of course, is they create a strategy and they let it run and they call it something and then it doesn't work out and they invent something, you know, pretty well similar and then they let it run and it doesn't work out. And it's, you know, they, it's like trend one, trend two, trend three, trend four. I guess it's, it's absurd. They can just keep manufacturing these things. Right. And trend without short energy trend with. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back to the weightings, you were saying it's really important, half or a good part of your research and your process, or process, as Mike would say. I'm, yeah, I do that, don't I? It's, <laughs> you're do Canadian, it. it's yeah. good. Um, so if I'm bringing that in-house, that's got to be a big issue, right? Like, I may know how to work the model, but the weightings, the risk control. Like Actually, that's a really good point, mm -hmm. and, and it, the current situation is a really good example. So if you look across a lot of the trend funds in the early part of 2020, you can tell that the vast majority of the returns have come because they're all, it's like a trampoline, right? You get all your guys moving over to the same point on the trampoline. You're all jumping up and down together. Um, you can go really high, <laughs> right? But you're also going to all go down together. And so you can, you can see all the equity index-based exposure did really well for a lot of these guys um, for most of the month. And now they've, a lot of them over the last couple of days have really taken a beating. Whereas we, our strategies are designed to um, acknowledge the fact that you need to be very, have very strong confidence in your signals to give up on the opportunity for diversification. So we're explicitly balancing off the opportunity from increasing exposure to certain markets and certain signals against the opportunity to, you know, lower the overall systematic portfolio risk by using diversification. So that, that really is the guts of how we think about the optimization. I think that, that a lot of more traditional systematic firms spend a lot of time thinking about their indicators and their signals and their execution, but maybe the, um, portfolio construction is is a bit of an orphan and that, that i think is a real strength of ours yeah and i've been banging that drum for a while here i think 
in order to survive, a lot of classic managed futures programs said, hey, we got to add long bias. We got to add more equity exposure or else we're going to be flat to down 4% for eight years. Mm. Right. And then the assets leave. So it was either you change or die. So they've either explicitly or not added some of that exposure and it comes back to bite them uh, from time to time. So how have you, how did you guys manage that last, you know, cause you're a long ball type program, right? Would you agree with that or no? Um, I mean, we've got, we've got sort of 40% of the risk budget is, is designed to be positive convexity and then maybe 60% is sort of, you know, uh, have zero correlation to, to equity beta strategically. Um, so I wouldn't say we're, we're, we're necessarily long vol biased. Um, I think we're probably vol neutral. Okay. So that was part of how you differentiated and were different over those, what has been a painful eight years for classic trend followers, classic mm -hmm. uh, volatility breakout type strategies that were struggling with vol just getting sucked out of not just equities, but across all the asset classes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, vol is sort of omnipresent, right? I mean, it, you can't kind of escape it and it's... Um, it is a source of premium, but the one of the objectives is how how do you kind of diversify away from just you can't you can't totally get completely away from it, and also expect to generate a, a premium. But but you can diversify into other risk exposures and structural inefficiencies that um, so you're not entirely relying on vol to deliver your performance. That did, that did really well over the last 10 years. Yeah. Right? If you're depending purely on trend and you require that ball and extension of a trend in order to make money beyond a couple of weeks, then you're going to have had a tough time over the last <coughs> 10 years. And so the approach when, when using all these other factors that we use is that, you know, yes, we've a portion of the portfolio may be suffering because trend continues to suffer. But if you have these other very uh, non-orthogonal, non-correlated uh, alpha streams that didn't suffer the same fate as trend in the futures arena, then you have a product that um, that you're not necessarily going to get sold out of. And so let's unpack what are those different alpha generators as much as you can share that. You don't want to be uh, all the IP out there. Well, I mean, I think we were, we, our presentations and stuff share the fact that we've got some trend ensembles, some carry ensembles, and we think about carry, I think in a, some of our carry indicators are a little more traditional and others I think are very different. Um, and the ones that are very different are just as powerful as the more traditional ones, but they're orthogonal. So they are really complementary in the portfolio. Um, and some of the other, and I don't want to go too down this far down this path, but, but there are other um, arbitrage opportunities. They're not pure arbitrage, but it's sort of regulatory arbitrage and structural arbitrage um, factors that have been extraordinarily steady, profitable um, over many, many, many years. And that we, if you sort of look at simplistic versions of strategies that try to harness those uh, inefficiencies, they, they work, but they're not attractive enough to, to really generate much attention, which is what we really love we sort of try to target um, anomalies or inefficiencies or edges that there's been some papers published on them, but not very many because they're not 
the original papers weren't very exciting. But if you just think about them in a slightly different way and you apply, you know, ensemble type thinking, then what emerges is actually this incredibly powerful signal that you can't capture using traditional thinking, but if you use the, the type of thinking that we bring to bear is, is fabulously profitable, a very high sharp ratio and orthogonal to the other, the other things in the portfolio. So it's, I, th- I think that type of thinking is also a really important uh, part of our edge. Yeah. It's almost like a Google AdWords platform, right? You're, you don't want to just compete on the highest ad. Like you want to find the really long tail keyword that's not a lot of people are using that delivers to your business. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, and you're, and you're looking for, for large, sustainable, <clears throat> structural, sometimes the regulatorily rate related willing losers. Those who are driven to make transactions that are not necessarily driven by sort of simple or pure wealth maximization. There is some other driver that's driving the behavior that forces them to make mistakes. Therefore, the mistakes are consistent and more reliable. Mm-hmm. That are And they're happy to do it. So this is an interesting topic yeah. that Chris Schindler brought up where the other side is making a rational decision to give you money. Yeah. So I'm going to have to ask for some examples. We have some sort of an well, example? Sure. Let's take a simple example. Yeah. I'm an advisor, and um, someone gives me an order for an ETF, and the order's before 9.30 in the morning, and I'm obliged by the regulators to make sure that market order is put in the market by 9.30 a.m., and that may not be the best time for that order to get executed. And you, you, so that you see all kinds of hairy bars on certain different types of each as a simple, simple example. So you can take that example of that simple RIA, which would be a small edge, and then think about that at an institutional level when institutions are driving transactions where their main objective is not optimizing the transaction, but it's the speed of the transaction. Or an investment board who has to manage a number of investment committee is managing a portfolio and they're making decisions based on that portfolio that aren't necessarily 100% wealth maximizing. Or the, or the requirement to hedge risk out of the portfolio and be you're paying an insurance premium by buying puts, protecting the portfolio in certain times. This is driven by a committee. committee. They're making a conscious decision that helps them. I thought you were going to say it's driven by a comedian. I was going <laughs> to... Yeah, well, kind of. Not too far away. And then the other side is able to provide the other side of what their, what their needs are. And so it is a an ecosystem of, you know, winners and losers in different areas, but at the end of the day, it's they're there in, um, in, in a positive way. I'll give you one concrete example. Imagine, at the, you know, due to um, banking regulations, banks are required to square their duration book, square their treasury book, and monitor a variety of other VAR-related measures into the end of reporting season every month and every quarter. Now, if you don't think that that impacts bond returns around those dates, then you're probably missing something, right? So there's one simple example of how the regulations impose behavior that is structural, it's not going away, and is systematic and is profitable for those who are able to identify it and harvest it systematically. Just the carry trade is a structural example. 
also, right? Of, sure. I mean, yeah, and, and, yeah, and, and carry, is, it's been argued, depending on the asset class, carries can, can be kind of risk-based because it hurts when it, it, it hurts when it hurts to hurt, right? It's yep. sort of pro-cyclical, um, especially on the currency side. But if you sort of, if you put it together, like traditional carry into a, into a diversified portfolio, you find it's not nearly so, so risk-based and it becomes more of a sort of inefficiency. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to, to try and ascribe cause effect to a lot of these things is, um, I think really challenging, but you can sort of point to enough examples of, uh, where structural effects are identifiable that you can say, okay, if these structural, if I can identify these ones through some kind of narrative or some sort of cause effect, then there must be a wide variety of other ones that I can't see, but I can kind of harvest in the same way. And that comes back into some game theory and who, Who's doing what they need to do? Why do they need to do it? Mm-hmm. Do they care if they're giving up the edge? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so are you guys consciously pressing on that game theory? Are you identifying the players, identifying their motives, or you're just seeing it in the price action? Well, I think probably it's it's mostly uh, in the price action. But then if there's a thesis about why we might expect to see behavior in the price action... And then you go and sort of poke and prod and there's something there. And then if you apply some of the, the sort of boosting bagging ensemble type type thinking to it, then something meaningful emerges from it. But, um, you know, it, sometimes it's, it emerges from the data. Sometimes it emerges from a thesis, but um, we're, we're happy to come at it from either direction. And the research team is actively trying to find these. Yeah, the- yeah absolutely. Is there any machine learning or AI involved? I think we've talked about that at some points before, but where do you guys stand on that? Yeah, what's funny is, I mean, talk about the evolution of thinking, right? I mean, I think um, we had an associate who worked with us about five years ago. And I, rem- I remember him, he was very enthusiastic about machine learning. And I remember him saying, or asking, you know, when are you going to start thinking about using some machine learning? And I said to him, we will never be using machine learning as a major um, source of information in our strategies. And I think our thinking on that has, well, our understanding of what is meant by machine learning in air quotes has yeah. evolved very substantially. And, um, yeah, and my big caveat always, whenever I ask someone to use AI with the caveat that almost anyone who says they do, they're really just talking about automation. Sure. And yeah. not pure black box, the machines doing all the everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I think certainly our, the, the direction of motion for us is in, is in the direction of using the tools that, that fall out of the machine learning space to, to do a better job of finding and refining strategies and, and portfolios. And from a pure like uh, manpower kind of, you can just process way more data points. Yeah, there's, there's that side of it. And it's just a, again, without going too far into it, it's just a, a shift in thinking about what's possible with a different tool set. You know, like if you, if you want to build a, a house and all you've got is a rock, um, Axe, (laughs) 
you know, you're going to build a different house than if you've got a, a bunch of modern tools. And I think it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's really the we, difference. We cover this extensively in, in a podcast we did. It was uh, machine learning, Pandora's black box or something like that. And we go through the different, uh, alluding to Adam's <clears throat> tool analogy. So there are many different tools in the machine learning toolbox that affect and can improve the portfolio construction process, understanding covariances, clustering, and so on, that have nothing to do with picking better futures. It, it's, it's used in a completely different area. And in, in that, that tool set, we have been using for years. Yep. But everybody thinks of machine learning as, can you, can, can you stick it on the market and it'll come back and find this magical equity line. And uh, what we show is that that's not the case. There, there, it really does continue to come down to the imagination of the individual or individuals who are working on the problem, understanding that all that machine learning is doing when trying to find trends or trying to find some alpha is finding patterns. And the vast majority of those patterns are overfit and garbage and aren't going to actually work out a sample. So the big human aspect of, to all of this is do you have a filtering or validation system that truly works to only let in the patterns identified by the process that are going to work out a sample and that's really where a couple of our quants came from that space have been profiting in a very substantial way using these tools this quantum mental approach of using the machine learning to find better edges, but making sure that the filtering process is tight. And that's really where the IP comes in in the, in the machine learning space. And then it sounds like you would always, no matter what comes out of even that research process, would come in front of a committee or have to be like, okay, is there a fundamental reason behind this before we sick the computers on it? <laughs> I think our thinking on, on that has evolved. We've got lots of stuff that we, we've got fundamental backing behind, and I think we're we're being a little bit more flexible in our thinking on, yeah, how on deep, that. How deep do you want to go on that? Yeah. yeah. Well, how turtly are we going to get? Yeah, there? exactly. <laughs> because uh, every economic reasoning is simply a story. Yeah. And the stories get more and more complex to appease the complex thinker, um, which, again, then comes into the, the AI scenario where you're going to talk to an investment committee and you're going to say, we're running some AI in, in your Calper's pension fund. Why did it do what it did? We don't know. And we can't tell you whether it does good or bad. So you tell me how many people are going to be behaviorally able to jump on that bandwagon. Now, eventually when everybody's doing it, they probably will. But at the beginning, there's likely going to be for thoughtful practitioners. There's probably going to be an opportunity there to provide some excess returns that's overlooked by yeah. others. And it really then from a business perspective becomes how much, like Mike was saying earlier, how far into the future you want to go, not just on the strategy development. If it works, it works, but is it going to sell? Are you actually going to raise assets in a pure machine learning space? So the truth is that from the institutional space, they're not ready for a full on AI deep, you know, right. there's no narrative. There's nothing ability. there. But you can use the tools in the other areas of portfolio construction. And also, you can apply machine learning to these factors to identify better ways of combining them. 
right? Rather than just saying, I'm going to grab the same universe and do a bunch of mean reversion strategies, and I'm going to do a, the same thing and just focus on carry or whatever, you, you actually put all of those into a bag and let the machine combine them in ways that you get a pretty decent outcome. So at the end of the day, you're still based on fundamental understanding and the, that persistence of the, those factors, but you're combining them in interesting ways. The other side of things and where we may actually launch a completely separate product is the, we're just going to find patterns. I don't, I don't, when you look under the hood, you don't, you don't even want to know what the indicators are, but it works really well and it's a zero correlation to everything else. And there is an audience for that. It generally tends to be really advanced quant-based um, family offices. Yeah. And so that'll probably be the beginning of that side of the machine learning evolution. And you would have risk controls and, uh, and whatnot on it. It's not yeah, just going to be like, oh, we're going 100% long the portfolio natural gas futures. And limited capacity, importantly, as well. That's right. So that's the that's, future? That's the evolution of... Uh, evolution of evolution? <laughs> uh, no, and we see on our side of the world... Uh, heavy interest in AI, again, air quotes, AI investment strategies. They don't understand it. They think it's going to make everything better. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an interesting blog post, Ben Hunt, you guys know of him. Yeah. He yep. was saying the market's a bonfire. <laughs> and it's basically like you can't model a bonfire. Even the most sophisticated computer, you couldn't recreate the, uh, so everyone thinks they can just get the, the holy grail and get the key to the clock or whatever, but there's no such thing. So if I think, as you're saying, if you can get your AI mind to say, hey, I'm not trying to figure out the, the secret, quote unquote secret. I'm just trying to pull little pieces out of the puzzle. It's just, okay. it's a, I thought your analogy on a better tool set. I mean, you know, you have a set of tools, you're going to get, you're going to get results. You have a different set of tools. You have the potential for better results, different results. Part of the tool set is, is um, finding tools to help explain <laughs> what, what's going on beneath the hood you know i mean it's i subscribe to the affect theory of decision making so the limbic system drives behavior and the prefrontal cortex defends it <laughs> right so you know we all think about cause effect as in we take in information the prefrontal cortex processes it like a computer and then we take some logical action from what falls out of that logical processing in reality, if you look at how the actual brain operates, it drives a decision or drives a behavior, information comes in, the limbic system reacts far more quickly, you act, and then the cerebral cortex kicks in, the neocortex kicks in and says, this is why you did this, right? Right. It's like it a explains the biological cover-ups nonstop. Exactly. And right. Go create a story on why we did that. Yeah. And, and so I think we... You know, you're going to create tools, things are going to work, other things are not going to work. You're maybe not going to have a precise cause-effect connection there, but you can tease out enough of a probabilistic cause-effect um, narrative so that we can get comfortable and client can get comfortable, but different clients are going to get comfortable with different levels of abstraction. <laughs> Okay, so putting this all this package together, things have gone pretty well for the firm, for the programs. Uh, I think assets are close to all-time highs. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, and you were nominated for some awards recently? Yeah, no, we were lucky enough to, um, to be nominated for four out of the 15 HFM Quant Awards recently. One for a 40-act fund and the other ones for 
the Evolution Futures program. So we're pumped. We'll see. Fingers crossed. They'll, they'll announce it next month. We're, we're RCM's nominated for a few things as well. So we'll see you there, hopefully. Yeah. Fantastic. And we'll celebrate. Uh, time for our favorites. We'll do a little quick fire. Uh, and I, I also wanted to mention we're all low-carb uh, proponents here. Not in this trip. Not on this. Not in Miami, but in our real lives. I'm, I'm carbo-loading. Carbo <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Carb cycling. <laughs> what, uh, how'd you guys get to that place? And is it kind of, it, I like it because it kind of shows a, a discipline that also is needed in the marketplace, but just yeah, I mean, two seconds on your low carb aspirations. I started it years, like it's been a long ago. time. It's been more, more than, yeah, it just, my body agreed with it when I started reading up on it. Then, um, halfway through I found keto, uh, the ketogenic diet. And, you know, that's cutting out even more. And it's, it's a very precise, you have to thread that needle really precisely for yeah. it to work for you. But I just found your, your cognitive abilities go way up. You're, you don't have, you know, that lull in the middle of the day. And, um, you know, body composition gets better. Everything just basically improved for, for me. And we were able to spread the love in the workplace and try to get our partners to join us. With well, a Mike lot of and, resistance. And, and Rodrigo are, are evangelists for things that they are passionate about and, and both have a real sort of coaching dimension to them. And, and so I think they're, when they caught on to something, it's infectious and took, took me a while to uh, embrace it. And I fought it for a while and, and eventually thought I'd try it and it was just magical. So we, we're mixing in a little fasting now too. You've had yeah. some great results with the, uh, intermittent fasting yep yep yeah, five days seven day fasts yeah. those are pretty fun it's too long yeah well so i i think that so many years ago someone said something to me that that sort of stuck which is um here's a diet you should try and the person will say well i, I can't do that or it's not going to work or, it's not this or that and it's like no, no hold on a second um you do it and then tell me if it works do not listen to me don't listen to me, get off your ass and do it. And then you tell me what impact it had on you. And so I think for us, it's well, the carnivore diet, we've cycled in and out of that keto intermittent fasting. It really is a function of I'm going to do some eating and that can have some positive effects. It can have some side sideways effects. Why don't I just mindfully observe how I feel in different ways that I might eat and then think about how I would like to feel and then understand that what I consume from a food perspective will have implications on that. So I should think about that and do some stuff. And so we just try a bunch of stuff and say, wow, the, the carnivore diet has some really interesting um, manifestations in your body that are amazing. Uh, it's really difficult, socially difficult. I, I was talking to a couple people at the table last night about how Fasting can be difficult socially. How do you build it into your, your daily life? Um, but the, the point is just try a protocol and see what it does for you. It's the old N equals one. You're one biological system. Sometimes these things work for people. Sometimes they don't. But don't tell me. Just go and try it. I like it. It ties back to your quant kind of roots, right? Of like, exactly. hey, if we're going to test, we're going to try, we're going to see what the results are, mm. then we'll make a decision. And, and, and we, we kind of love when people say too. you're crazy. Yeah, that exactly. sounds crazy. I'm like, it's crazy. Oh, I'm probably doing it exactly. immediately. I love how like keto is now very popular, but when we started it, there was no literature on it. There was no food. There was nothing. There was no food. <laughs> now you can actually <laughs> you do it and get anything. cookies and stuff. But at the time, 
Everybody thought we were nuts. I still want McDonald's to just nuts. sell like a bag of peanuts or something. Because that's <laughs> you have kids, you're going to end up at McDonald's, and there's yeah, no, yeah. there's nothing. Yeah, you got to prepare carb. for sure. And the, uh, yeah. and I, I put, I wrote a personal blog once on this because I lost like 30 pounds going low carb, mm. and I think one or I had like 10 points how to do this, and number two was like you're going to get made fun of. Yeah, because <laughs> you're at a Cubs game and you're like eating a hot dog without the bun, yeah. and people are like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, but once you get past that, it's that's probably one of my superpowers to be able to be made fun of and not really think much about it. <laughs> like you're gonna say to hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> irreverent. Yeah, uh, I think that's it. You guys want to leave uh, listeners with any last thoughts, or we'll put in the show notes uh, links to the pod and yeah, you your can, white papers and whatnot. You can follow us on Twitter. Where uh, Mike and Adam are pretty active on Twitter. So maybe give your Twitter handles out. I'm at Gestalt U G E S T A L T U. I'm looking mine up. <laughs> and I'm Rod Gordillo P. Gordillo. At Rod Gordillo P. Yeah, you guys are active on Twitter and all the it's maybe one day they'll do a case study of like this is how you grow assets and become a professional. Right? Well, I think it's been a great forum for discussion. You know, yeah. and, and I know that probably Adam takes advantage of that more than any of us, but it is just a great way to have a conversation about, yeah. you know, what's refreshing. There's way too many managers who are what you mentioned of like trying to hide their IP so much that they don't want to give up anything or even engage in a conversation. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a bit of a galaxy brain too. You know, like I came up with a, just a kernel, which we don't need to get into a con- an idea. And I, I, I drew it out and I didn't want to bother my quant team with it. And I said, can you, um, anyone give me a, a function that maps to this shape? <laughs> and I had 15 people write and say, yeah, this function maps to that kernel, this function, you could use this step function or this polynomial or whatever. And it's just stuff that you, it's kind of wacky. There's always an expert that if you just yeah. put it out there that they're happy to kind of dig in and throw You also it back have to, to give in order to get. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people just get on there and they're like, how do I do this? Yeah, we're getting been getting a lot You're of traction. Right. We did a mini series podcast, uh, twelve episodes, fifty minutes a piece on a wide variety of important topics on portfolio construction and whatnot. So practitioners love that, and allocators that are getting to know us actually like listening to those because you can double click into it and get the content behind it. I would say that that's called the Resolves Twelve Days of Investment Wisdom. Oh yeah, and you can have it in any podcast. Listen, it's it's pretty. I th- I think it's a pretty neat collection of thoughts. And if you listen to it at two x speed, you can. Get through it a lot. That's right. It's like Game of Thrones. Once you do episode one, you can't stop. I sound way better at 2x. (laughs) I do 2x. (laughs) I I know. I just, when, you know, when when content is thick and you're, that's how I know the content is really good. I'm like, ooh, two, two and a half. This is not, I'm not, I can't follow. Supposedly Netflix is experimenting on watching, being able to speed up the. uh, I watch watch all my YouTube videos at 2x. In an hour. All right. Thanks, guys. That's it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.